Good afternoon and welcome to the 98th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I'm going to talk about COVID-19 and hurricane evacuation and sheltering with Josh Baer, Elizabeth Dunn, Jennifer Marshall, and Wee Yusuf. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics. Feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 5th, 2020, there are globally 18,614,542 cases of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 18,364,694 cases yesterday. Of those, 4,793,950 are in the United States. That's up from 4,742,277 yesterday. There are now a total of 157,416 deaths in the United States from COVID-19. It's up from 156,133 yesterday, yet another day with more than 1,000 deaths reported in the United States. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day. I'd like to continue that now and today as a story of survival and coping. The headline is Killeen Resident Lived Through Hurricane Katrina and Now COVID-19 by John Clark. This is the Killeen, Texas Daily Herald. This was published on April 19th. For a lot of people, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic could go down as the most difficult and memorable time of their life. But Killeen resident Courtney Satcher is also a survivor of another historic disaster that made headlines around the world. I was 14 years old living in New Orleans, Louisiana, with my mom, dad, and two older brothers when Hurricane Katrina hit, Satcher said. We lived in the part of the city that got hit the worst, the Ninth Ward, with the most water damage. We literally had to start our lives over here in Killeen. There was nothing left to salvage. We have lived here since 2005. This is our home now. A self-employed cosmetologist and nail technician, Satcher, says the virus pandemic has brought back painful memories of Katrina, one of the deadliest and most destructive hurricanes in U.S. history. As many as 2,000 people died and damages were reported at more than $125 billion from that storm. She remembers first hearing about what was being called the coronavirus and having flashbacks to that awful time back in New Orleans. It put me back, I guess you could say, to when Katrina was happening. It didn't seem real. But when you're going to the store and you see the shelves empty, people walking around with face masks and gloves, it's like, oh gosh, it really is real, you know. There is a familiarity with it, a definite fear for humanity. It makes me scared, she said, because most people haven't been in a situation where there was panic and now people are in panic mode. It's such a crisis, and people don't know how to prevent this and aren't taking the precautions that they should. Back then, yes, she said, I shed some tears, but now I'm much more reinforced with my faith. 
I'm thankful that my family and I are not in the position to have to worry right now when it comes to the necessities, the essentials, and I'm faithful in God that things will eventually be okay. The pandemic and all its repercussions, self-distancing, stay-at-home orders, local and state mandates have not affected her a great deal, Satcher says. While she has a beauty salon at her home, she keeps busy with another business venture making natural beauty products. Before area bars, clubs, and restaurants closed down, she also performed regularly at various venues around the city, singing and reading poetry. And although gigs have stopped for now, she also has a home studio where she records music and stays ready for things to open back up. Here and there, of course, it gets to me, she said, sometimes. You know, you're so used to seeing friends and just people in the community out on the streets saying hi. There's not so much of that these days. We're all just communicating via social media. It's just different. And then there's the matter of Satcher's wedding, set for next month. This was reported in April. Instead of a big party, there will be only a small ceremony. Not quite the celebration she imagined, but they are making the best of it. We're just going to do something simple with our pastor, my immediate family. My fiance's family isn't from here, so they'll be here in spirit. It could have been worse. It could not be happening at all. As for the future, Satcher says that although things look bad right now, she's hopeful and confident that this will soon be all over and things will get back to the way they used to be. I think it's going to take some time for things to get back to normal, whatever normal may have been. I don't know if it will ever really get back to normal. There have been so many businesses that have been affected. It's just been like a light switch, lights on, lights off. But I do believe it will get better. I'm hopeful for what is to come. All we can do is take it day by day, take each moment as it comes. Okay, I'd like to introduce my guest for today, and let me just introduce them one by one. You can look them up and read uh, even more about their really interesting works. This is a great research team. Joshua Bear is Research Associate Professor at the Virginia Modeling Analysis and Simulation Center at Old Dominion University. Dr. Bear conducts studies, performs modeling, and publishes insights related to community resilience, catastrophic events, evacuation behavior, recurrent flooding, and the disposition of medically fragile and vulnerable populations in the post-event recovery process. Dr. Baird has also published articles addressing drivers of emergency department utilization, asthma, and health service utilization. He publishes for emergency managers, public health officials, and many other audiences. Elizabeth Dunn is an instructor at the University of Southern Florida College of Public Health, where she teaches courses in disaster management, humanitarian relief, and homeland security. She is currently pursuing her Doctor of Public Health degree in public health leadership. The focus of her current research is examining and evaluating disaster management systems, working primarily with vulnerable populations from hurricane sheltering to humanitarian logistics and supply chain disruption. Furthermore, Elizabeth is involved with research on policy and decision-making during a pandemic and how the built environment and social implications impact at-risk neighborhoods. My third guest is Dr. Jennifer Marshall. She's Associate Professor at the University of South Florida College of Public Health Child Center. She serves as Interdisciplinary Faculty Lead and is also Director of Research and Evaluation and Deputy Director of Outreach for the NIOSH-funded Sunshine Education Research and Training Center for Occupational Health. Her research interests stem from over 30 years of experience working with community programs that support perinatal women's health, underserved communities, and parents of young children with special health care needs. 
Lee Yusuf. He is Professor of Public Service in the Strom College of Business at Old Dominion University. She's also Assistant Director of Old Dominion's Institute for Coastal Adaptation and Resilience, a national center for the science and practice of coastal resilience. Her research focuses on coastal resilience and wicked issues at the intersection of government, nonprofit, business, and civil society. Powerhouse team today, really looking forward to this discussion. Joshua, Elizabeth, Jennifer, and we welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. So I'd like to start the way I've been um, starting all these calls just to get a sense of where people are and how things are there. And so if we could just find out where you're calling in from and what the COVID-19 situation is there. And I'll just start with you, Joshua. Uh, Certainly, Scott. Uh, I'm in Norfolk or Norfolk, depending on how you say it. we just had a storm that came through here the other night. You may have heard about it. Uh, it was uh, fairly mild by some standards. The whole issue of evacuation and sheltering uh, was very much on the people's minds the last uh, 48 hours of the storm approached. Uh, COVID-wise, the Hampton Roads region, uh, Norfolk is a large urban center in the middle of Hampton Roads region. Um, we've had a, a heavy dose of uh, COVID here of the state statewide. So within the state, Hampton Roads has had more of its share. Uh, there's also been a dose up in Northern Virginia uh, too. So we're keeping a very close eye on it. And we're quite cautious. Elizabeth, can I come to you for the same question? Sure. Um, so I'm calling from Tampa, Florida. Um, as of right now, we um, are seeing a spike of COVID cases here in uh, the Tampa Bay area and across Florida. So I'd have to say right now um, with the near miss with <laughs> the latest hurricane um, that headed up your way, um, Dr. Bear, uh, we were on standby and seeing what how we could shift from pandemic response to um, possibly opening shelters. Um, and then we, we saw the hurricane kind of head north. So it, it's been very interesting seeing that that balance between the pandemic situation and that hurricane response. Thanks for that. Jennifer, same to you. So I'll just add, um, also from Tampa, Florida, Hillsborough County, um, I would say uh, to add to what Elizabeth was saying, I work primarily with nonprofits and public health serving uh, underserved communities, maternal child health and uh, low-income communities. So I would say uh, most of our efforts here at the university and my work has been with our, uh, our public health systems of care and our workforce that supports those systems of care. Um, just really moving from disaster to disaster and trying to support families through what they're dealing with um, as their situations become even even more difficult during COVID-19. We, can we get an update from you? So um, like Joshua, I'm also in Norfolk um, and I think Virginia as a state as a whole has been faring a little bit better than some of the other states. Um, but Norfolk right in the center of Hampton Roads um, is kind of leading the state unfortunately in terms of um, COVID cases primarily um, Anecdotally, at least the evidence is uh, due to the opening of businesses and tourism back into um, the region. So unfortunately, we're leading the state right now. 
Um, the governor has put us back on some restrictions relative to the rest of the state because of um, the increase in the COVID cases in the region. Well, thank you all for making time uh, to have this conversation today. And of course, it's it's super timely. Um, if I could have figured out a way to get you on yesterday, I would have, have done it. But <laughs> I think anybody on the East Coast is still um, digging out from Hurricane Isayos, which uh, did come through. I'm in New Jersey, and it did um, down a lot of trees here and brought the power out. I don't think and there were, I'm sure, um, evacuations, not flooding evacuations, but probably power outage evacuations. So you're experts and you're collaborating on issues around hurricane risk perception, evacuation and sheltering. And it couldn't be more timely in conjunction with COVID-19. We've had a couple of conversations on COVID calls about compound disasters. We talked about wildfires and compound disasters. Um, we had a previous conversation on the first day of hurricane season um, with Miriam Belplidia and um uh, it was a pretty amazing, uh, uh, Aaron Clark Ginsburg, pretty amazing discussion. But that was perspective from June, and in COVID time, that already feels like it was last year, really. So really excited to get an update from you all as we're moving along in the hurricane season. Joshua, I'm going to um, throw the first question your way, and I guess it's a pretty broad question about risk perception. And uh, reading Courtney Satcher's story from Texas um, mm -hmm. to me was an interesting insight to how people do carry their experience with previous disasters and hurricanes in this case. They carry them with them for a long time, and it shapes the way they look at the world and risk as they go on. What are some of the features that we should be thinking about as we understand the ways that people perceive weather event risk, hurricane risk? Um, how much does previous experience matter, age, socioeconomic status, race, how, how do you begin to conceptualize this? Well, you know, uh, human beings are very uh, uh, complex, let's put it that way, and uh, risk perceptions of a, the same event among populations or households that are quite proximate to each other, uh, risk perceptions can vary widely, and we spent a, a good deal of time trying to unpack what accounts for uh, people's risk perceptions. And Scott, you mentioned past exposure. And we know if you've had past exposure to a severe weather event, for example, and you've suffered a property loss or an acute injury uh, in your director, uh, friends or family, uh, your risk perceptions change for the next coming event. Uh, in addition, if you uh, uh, live on a coastal area and you've seen flooding in your neighborhood uh, frequently, that can change your experience. But in addition to those physical exposures and losses that we know about, uh, there's internal things with the psychology of people. Uh, people have different uh, sense of um, a, a, a power and ability to prepare for weather and overcome a storm. They also have different sense of fatalism. So if you got a, a sense of efficacy about your ability to uh, manage a storm event and you have a sense of fatalism, you're less likely to get out of the way of a storm. You're more likely to stay in the path of that storm relative to your neighbor. Even though it's the same event, you know, quite different uh, uh, risk perceptions. Scott, if I could add on to that, um, you know, so in the research, there's this risk perception attitude framework that talks about not just risk perception itself, but also that 
um, when you couple your risk perception with your perceived ability to respond to that risk, that kind of conditions how you respond, whether you're responsive, avoidant, uh, proactive, or indifferent in terms of your actual your, your approach to responding to that particular risk. And one of the challenges that we're facing with, with COVID is that, yes, we know that your previous experience does condition how you respond to an, a current event like a hurricane that might require you to think about evacuation. But we also, uh, from our early conversations with key stakeholders across um, the Eastern Seaboard here in May and June, is that we don't know yet really how um, interactions with COVID then change how much people rely on their previous experience. So COVID itself can change that perception of risk because we also know then that who is vulnerable has also changed. When you think about a hurricane and a pandemic, the vulnerable mm -hmm. population expands and shifts. Um, so the perception of risk change, could change because of COVID, but also people's ability to respond to that risk because of the changes in the economic base, um, because of those reduced work hours, furloughs, layoffs, um, and also, you know, early on in May and June, we saw concerns about not being able to buy supplies, toilet paper, things that people might need to evacuate might also change um, how people think about their ability to respond to during um, a hurricane event. And, and so it's not just on the risk perception side, but it's also then that perceived ability um, to respond that I think also has shifted and, and requires a different way of understanding this compound event that factors in a pandemic on top of a natural hazard. So that's, a, you're describing an incredibly dynamic and sort of iterative situation already. And now you layer another risk on top that as we know, has been hard for people to get the measure of because of challenges in risk communication, because of people's own status, and also, as you mentioned, people's economic status, which has been in flux throughout this as well. Jennifer, Elizabeth, I wondered on this initial sort of broad question, sort of thinking about risk perception, that, that side of it, or any other sort of initial comments you wanted to bring in before we dive into a little bit more granular detail. Either of you want to jump in on this? Well, I know we I wanted actually, to add... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Jennifer, go ahead, and then Elizabeth. I was just okay. I was just going to add briefly to this um this conversation about having these multiple events or living through past um, storms. We have a couple of of research studies that we've done, and one was in collaboration with University of Central Florida and University of Puerto Rico, working with uh, hospitality workers or talking with hospitality workers about their experiences of living through. Hurricane Irma and Maria, and then subsequently, you know, earthquakes and shortages and disaster after disaster. And a lot of that conversation has really revolved around this idea of resilience and community resilience, but also the workplace, because these conversations are in the context of, the, of their workplace. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot about our community um, in terms of our employers and our um, and our residents, um, developing this kind of sense of sense of resilience and response uh, as we weather multiple disasters. Elizabeth, did you want to add on to that? Or? Yeah, I think um, it's been interesting in terms of we we 
we have a team here at USF that um, conducted a survey looking at um, if people would here in the state of Florida would actually um, evacuate during a, a hurricane. And I think it's kind of interesting because when we look at data from evacuation orders during Irma, and then now we're looking at this situation here, um, you know, it, it, it's very, the, the perception, risk perception, um, you know, having those false alarms, I guess you can say, and, and, and things not being as bad as they potentially could have been, um, does put people on edge, but on top of it, just that having these constant stay-at-home orders and the, the issues with um, COVID-19 and, and the perception here, at least in the state of Florida, you know, when you have a majority of people that are older adults or high, or high number of older adults in some of the counties um, and seeing how that correlates with their decision to evacuate or not, I think some of these questions, um, when we're talking about vulnerable populations, are are pretty unique and, and interesting to see um, how this plays out and in, in per people's perceptions um, towards that risk. Yeah. So obviously it's uh, under the best circumstances then what you're describing is it already has uh, unlimited kind of complexity. It has to do with people's own status, their community, um, the clarity of the message, uh, whether or not they've evacuated previously. Um, Joshua, with that in mind, just um, coming back to this maybe this question of how emergency managers and public officials are doing already this summer, I know you're sort of watching this in real time. What are some of the preparations that have been made? What are some of the things you can point to where you find localities already taking steps to anticipate this sort of compound problem? That's a great question, and I can speak uh, uh, can't speak broadly across U.S. Uh, specific changes, but I can tell you within the state of Virginia, uh, emergency management, the public health community is very much in tune uh, with uh, um, uh, the hurricane season coming on to us here and the need to make adjustments uh, because of the public health crisis. But, you know, in a normal hurricane season, uh, evacuation and sheltering behavior is extremely complex. Uh, what factors do people put in their decision calculus, whether to uh, shelter in place, whether to shelter somewhere else uh, in the region, uh, whether to evacuate the region? All those things is, is very complex. Add that layer of complexity. Now we have the public health crisis. We have the COVID crisis that adds another layer of complexity. This is really important because risk perceptions uh, have a lot to do with your behavior. And we know that under COVID, people's risk perceptions are changing. And logically, you know their behavior is going to change. Emergency managers are doing, and health officials are doing a lot of planning, but there's planning assumptions that they have. So if you're uh, planning for capacity of the shelters, you have to make some assumptions about who's going to seek that shelter, who's going to show up, what the needs are, and how many, how many people there are going to be. So a lot of those planning assumptions have necessarily changed because people's behaviors have changed. So there's been a scramble the last couple of months to try and uh, readjust our uh, uh, body of knowledge and better understand that complexity, not just evacuation and shelter under normal evacuation season, uh, hurricane season, but now under COVID, and have that translate into a change in your planning assumptions and that translate into a change in your policy and your practice. And we've seen a number of different things coming online, uh, non-congregate care facilities uh, for shelters, rather than just a large congregate facilities where you have a closer uh, interaction between uh, the clients and the staff, things like that. 
So uh, we've been pretty proactive here, but we're definitely seeing that going on. You want to base those things in knowledge and fact, and that's a scramble to get a better handle on uh, uh, people's risk perceptions. Hmm. Jennifer and Elizabeth, I guess, can you give us the view from Florida in terms of, of how this may be working out, that how public officials are, are reacting or to the extent that they're willing to talk about these plans and uh, share what kind of steps they're taking to prepare for the compound disaster? Maybe Elizabeth first. Um, sure. Yeah, I'd have to say like um, each county, of course, has their own set of plans and how they operate and do things. Um, I think in Virginia, it's slightly different because the state has more control over um, your shelters, whereas here, here in Florida, each county operates in, in, their, own, um, in their own way. So when it comes to sheltering from the perspective here in Florida, we have what's called special needs shelters. And those are shelters that focus on those with medical needs. Um, and I know here, here in Hillsborough County, um, we've been focusing on adding additional special needs shelters so that we're not having a large number of individuals in, um, in the space, um, but also educating the community about alternative um, options for sheltering in terms of um, relocating to other parts of the county and just getting away from the water, you know, um, in terms of, you know, it being safer, not necessarily in a shelter. So the messaging definitely has changed and they're trying to push that. But on top of it, we have our general population shelters as well. And so, you know, making sure that the, the staff are properly trained um, and no infection control um, individuals that usually run those shelters are not necessarily public health officials. So making sure that they understand what it means to, to manage or operate a shelter with the, um, that infection control um, mindset, I think is, is kind of the, the direction that they're going. Um, other counties I know in our area, um, they have, um, you know, their own plans that they, they do things maybe a little bit differently, but they're also much smaller. So um, Pinellas County and Hillsborough County are large, larger counties within the state of Florida in general. Um, and so, knowing that certain counties are going to be evacuating to our location is, is really important. So that communication between counties um, has been really strong and understanding um, what those evacuation orders look like when people are trying to get away from the coastline and also how to properly um, conduct the transportation piece so that there, you know, those safety measures are in place and, and monitoring and, and, and making sure that, um, those that are getting on the buses are being screened and sent to the right place. I don't think there's a huge um, focus on using non-congregate shelters here um, as much. Um, those are going to be designated for those that are um, exhuming symptoms or already positive. Whereas um, I'm under the impression from what I'm hearing in the meetings, um, that's kind of the direction that they're going. Um, but also making sure that, um, you know, in our, in our county where we have a, a policy group that has a lot of, a lot of focus on making decisions here, um, an emergency policy group. Um, so normally it would be, you know, the health department's decision-making or the office of emergency management. Um, but this policy group is really taking the lead on a lot of the decisions that are made. So as of right now, the plans might be one thing, but then that policy group might meet and they might have a different vision for the plans that are in place. So, 
even there, really interesting comparison. To, I'm sure you're already working on this, but between Virginia and Florida, and I'm assuming if you brought New York State and Massachusetts or New Jersey into the mix, you would find that the approach to COVID at the state level is also, I mean, you said there's sort of a, they're not as worried about congregant sheltering in Florida, whereas they're more concerned about it in Virginia. I wonder if that reflects the variability in, in state in state styles there. Um, Jennifer, I wanted to ask you um, about shelter, a little bit more about shelters, um, even outside of the, of the context of COVID. What are the perceptions, misperceptions that people have about hurricane shelters? Well, we have mostly talked with, again, um, families who have young children, uh, pregnant women who were pregnant during the 2017 and 2018 um, storms, especially, um, and what their experiences were and what their perceptions currently are, and also the providers that work with them, home visitors, healthcare providers, social service providers, um, and again, those who work within those, those specific communities. And I think there's a lot of uh, apprehension, even before COVID-19, you know, apprehension and concern about how family-friendly shelters were, how safe they were for, um, for young children or comfortable for pregnant women and families with infants, for example. Um, and also, so, I, you know, the special needs shelters has a very specific, you know, criteria for who they serve, but there's a lot of vulnerabilities um, in our populations that, that we really need to be prepared for. So there's reluctance, I think, to shelter in congregate shelters. Um, but there's also, you know, it's, there's fear of staying at home in an unsafe environment. Um, there's also fear of leaving home, um, you know, potentially having, uh, not being there to supervise their homes if they're in their belongings, if they're not in a safe environment. So we've been speaking with families again in these communities and, and, um, and there's really difficult decisions for them to make. And they really count on our nonprofits and our civic groups and our community networks to spread the word. Um, you know, those are their trusted messengers. Those are the folks that can have conversations uh, with them as they go through the decision-making process, which we just said is really complicated. Um, so I think our planners are trying to figure out the logistics, the buildings, the shelters, the processes, and then we really need to coordinate with our community folks to be able to, to communicate that back and forth with our, with our residents. And it is very localized, but the other thing about Florida, even though much of our, our coordination is local, we have, you know, system-wide relationships. So as Elizabeth said, our inter-county relationships among um, community health workers or maternal child health or um, our health departments and social services are very strong. So they do coordinate. remind people you're listening to COVID calls and today we're talking about hurricane evacuation and sheltering in the context of COVID-19. Um, so we talked a little bit there about, um, Jennifer was giving us a really interesting perspective of how families 
special needs populations may have perceptions of what's going to happen at the shelter. We Could you talk a little bit about the decision itself, the evacuation decision, and maybe from sort of the economic perspective, like what does it cost to evacuate? Um, you know, what kinds of, con- of concerns do families have, economically speaking, when they choose to actually you know, so go to a shelter or not go to a shelter? Many of them may go other places, but there's an economic impact of that, and I think it's often um, – I mean, it must be divergent across people's economic status, but I don't, I don't know much about how people make those decisions or what it costs. So I think, so, so you're right. Economics does play a big factor in the decision-making process, whether they decide to shelter in place to so stay at home or whether to go to a public shelter or to evacuate. One of the things that we regularly do here at Old Dominion University is we conduct a life in Hampton Road survey. And in this last survey, that was done about a month ago, we asked the question of whether people would consider going evacuating um, or sheltering in a public shelter. And the public shelter itself is not a very popular option, but it is an important last kind of last resort, last option for those people. Um, but when you think about those who decide to, for example, not evacuate, sometimes it's not just necessarily about the lack of resources, um, you know, the decision to not evacuate could be because of the lack of cash or credit um, to evacuate because it's not just the transportation. Then you have to cover the cost of meals and the cost of lodging and a variety of other things. There's also the uncertainty of how long are you going to have to cover these costs for some people who might be unemployed for a longer period of time. But those who might also have their homes as a primary asset might also be more reluctant to evacuate because of the field uh, that need to protect their primary asset, which is their home. So that might drive that decision to stay at home. Um, but also as some of Josh's earlier work, and Josh can speak a little bit more about this, some of Josh's earlier work also highlights the um, important facet of employment quite a few of our under-resourced members of the community rely on hourly wages. They are working in the service or the construction industry where the turnaround time post an event is very quick. So if you evacuate and you're working in the construction industry, once that event is done, you're expected, this is your primary uh, you know, livelihood, you're expected to be back at work, maybe putting up shingles. Uh, or houses that are, are damaged or working on, on repairs. So if you're not already returning to your home post that event, um, that really challenges your ability to remain um, employed. So those are, you know, it's, it's your primary asset is your home. So you might decide to stay in that home to protect the contents and the home itself. It might be the lack of resources on hand. If you're working hourly wages and you're expected to get a paycheck, um, but you're not able to cover your costs with this current paycheck, or if you might expect to need to be at work almost immediately following an event, all of those drives, those are resource constraints that drive a decision of whether to evacuate, whether to stay. Um, but again, when you throw the COVID um, exposure to COVID in there, it also makes the public shelters, at least according to um, our findings from our Life in Hampton Road survey, uh, much less uh, likely of an option for people to evacuate to a public shelter. 
Well, but if, if I may, can I uh, extend? Go and, uh, yeah, go ahead. This is kind of like a. It's kind of like a. I was going to say, is this kind of like a nominating season debate? <laughs> if your name, if your name is checked, then you get to come in and and say a little bit. So tell us more about this, Josh. On this economic side, I'd like to reinforce what uh, what we've uh, brought up here at Oldman University. We've done a uh, um, uh, for uh, well over a decade. Um, surveying the population about evacuation and sheltering behavior. We do that uh, uh, in the normal blue sky weather, uh, but we also queue up uh, uh, data elicitation uh, activities uh, immediately following an event. So we don't say, theoretically, what might you do in a Category 2 storm? Well, if the storm just passes, then we, what did you actually do? So we try to uh, look at a, a, a what you actually did versus what they might do under a, a theoretical scenario. Mm. Uh, but to build upon what we said, uh, you know, you've heard the phrase, uh, life ain't fair. And, uh, my, my father told me that all the time when I was growing up, right? I didn't like to hear that. Uh, but for low to modest income households, when it comes to evacuation, life ain't, life ain't fair. Uh, low to modest income households are least able to afford the cost associated with an evacuation. For a family of four, we estimate, uh, for a family of four uh, to leave Hampton Roads and go inland, go westward or go northwest, uh, here we figure eighteen hundred to twenty five hundred dollars uh, each time they evacuate. Uh, we are in a fortunate but unfortunate position in Hampton Roads uh, that we stick out in the Mid Atlantic pretty far, and these storms come up just like the recent storm. And uh, uh, often we have what we call near misses. Uh, they're impending storms, and they look like they're going to be the big one that we've been waiting for for quite some time, and then it kind of fizzles out a little bit. Well, if you're a low to modest income household. And it's built. This is a big one. It's finally going to happen. You pack up your family and you get out of Dodge and you spend $1,800 or $2,200. And it's a near miss, which it has been uh, frequently in the last uh, number of years. The next time a storm comes, the propensity to evacuate decreases. You may still be paying off that debt. You have enough cash or credit on hand to evacuate. And many families, they're living off credit to evacuation. And it takes years. Uh, 18 months, two years, three years later to pay off that debt. You're sacrificing uh, 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 maybe clothing for your children. You're making changes in your food choices because you put out that money uh, and you uh, uh, evacuated. There are many other families too in Hampton Roads that see a storm as an opportunity. Uh, When that storm passes, if you're in the auto industry or auto repair or home or construction, things like that, uh, it's an opportunity to make some quick cash, two, three, four hundred dollars cleaning up in your neighborhood. And that's enough incentive to stay. Many of the businesses related to construction and auto repair are small family-owned businesses. And in fact, those businesses will tell their employees, once the storm passes, you're going to be working 20 hours a day. I need you here in Hampton Roads. If you leave, if you evacuate, you may not have a job when you get back. I need you here on the ground. And if it's a severe storm, uh, you may be delayed from getting back into a region if it's truly catastrophic uh, for days if so you end up staying in the uh, staying in the region. The last thing I would say is many of these low to modest income households work in service related industries. Uh, the hamburger stands, for example, uh, 24 hours before a storm makes landfall in North Carolina, south of us here, are still cranking out hamburgers. You're the breadwinner for the family. Uh, if you're not working and logging those hours, you don't get paid. I'm a state employee. If I leave, uh, my paycheck is probably going to be there if I have to evacuate. But for many of these uh, family members uh, work in the service industry, it's at the very last minute before they are relieved from work. And what you have to do is you have to travel farther 
for accommodations. So it's more fuel, more cost. You're paying two, three hundred dollars for a hotel room, which should only cost you eighty bucks, and you're at least able to afford it. But you're paying a premium to evacuate. That's what happens to low to modest income households in Hampton Roads. I just want to stay with this for a second, Joshua, because I mean, this conversation is really—I mean, it's, it's making my head tingle here because there's so many different layers to this. I don't know how you keep it all straight, but if I understand you correctly, then there's one concept of this I had never really considered that there must be millions of Americans who have evacuation debt that they carry forward. Is it so I want, maybe you can say a little bit more about that, but also this is a dynamic economic situation. I mean, this month is the worst economic performance in the United States since the great depression and it's going to get worse and it is going to be felt more acutely um, in the exact uh, industries that you've pointed to. And so does that mean projecting forward we can expect through the rest of this hurricane season people are going to be even less likely to evacuate on the chance that they may find some casual employment in the aftermath of the storm? I mean, that's risk on risk on risk. We're, 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 in a, we're set for uh, some real trouble because we have a one-two punch that's going on right now. There's a major thing you can do to avoid uh, uh, acute injury, death, and suffering is to get out of harm's way. There's a coastal area and it's under the threat of a storm. The best thing you can do is get out of harm's way. And there's two ways to do that. One is to go to a shelter that's a secure shelter that's more land or evacuate. And on those two points, what we're doing right now under COVID is people are fearful about going to those shelters. So there's fewer people that are going to go to their shelters. And because of COVID and the public health crisis, there is such so much job loss and income disruption People that might normally evacuate, they're reconsidering that decision and they're going to stay shelter in place. So what, what a, a reasonable prediction or assumption to be made is under the current hurricane season, if there was a, a, a severe weather event, a truly catastrophic event coming this way, we are likely to have fewer people seek shelter and fewer people evacuate, i.e. we're going to have more people parked precisely in harm's way in those coastal low-lying areas where we don't want the people uh, and so it's a frightening, uh, it's a frightening uh, thing to think about. And actually, to, to add to that, I actually have some since getting on over the last few days is actually working through our survey data. And we actually looked, uh, we asked people who uh, said they would not evacuate um, if the lack of cash or credit was partly a reason for them making that decision. And it was a factor in that decision making for 30 percent of the people, which seems a little low given that given those concerns. But then among those, almost half reported that a member of their household had either had been laid off, furloughed, or had reduced work hours because of COVID. And almost 20% had themselves experienced layoffs, furloughs, um, or reduced hours. So you're seeing that ripple effect of the COVID economic impact on the ability to evacuate as well. And it's factoring into the evacuation decision. And I just wanted to add to that. A lot of times we think about uh, families who have low income or the percent of families who have low income below poverty level, but these, um, the Alice households that asset limited income constrained employed Alice um, households. I just saw, I think the United Way report just came out. Maybe it was 
the last couple of days, um, showing that those 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 households have really increased during COVID. So, um, just to reinforce that, we have you know the working lower income households too. That's a big part of our population. Yeah, with with our with a survey that was conducted at USF pertaining to very similar to what we and Dr. Um, Bear are working on. We asked respondents about their perception of risk and also um, their vulnerability. How did they see themselves as vulnerable, especially to COVID? And 44.9% considered themselves vulnerable to COVID um, due to health risks. And then on top of it, 17.7% said they had somebody in their household that had special medical needs. So, you know, talking about just the the percentage or the the, those that just have that, that perception of risk, um, in terms of their health um, is another factor to consider when we're talking about vulnerabilities. And, you know, here, here's something that's not intuitive and that some people take pride and they put the energy into and they consider themselves storm literate. And if you're storm literate, uh, you listen to the Red Cross, uh, you have your medications tagged and in a bag, uh, you have fuel, uh, you have a generator, uh, and what I call is... You have seven cans of green beans on your shelf, right? No more green beans than anybody wants to eat in a, in a, in a lifetime, if you ask me. Uh, but you're stocked up on canned goods. You have the patients, you have the fuel, you have the generator, you're ready to go. And what, what we know is uh, uh, as your self, sense of efficacy increases, as your storm literacy increases, what happens to your propensity to evacuate? Your propensity to evacuate goes down. So those people that are most storm literate, that are most prepared in a sense for that storm are less likely to evacuate. Well, if it's a mild storm and you have mild flooding and there's trees down and the power's down for a couple of days or a week or something, having those cans of green beans and the fuel, that does, does, does you good, right? Listening to the Red Cross does you good. But if it's a truly catastrophic event and you got six, seven feet of water in your neighborhood, right? it doesn't matter how many cans of green beans on your, on your shelf. You're in a world of home. You should have evacuated. So it's complex. Uh, you want to raise awareness and increase literacy related to storm preparedness. Uh, but if you increase it to a certain level, you actually decrease the propensity to evacuate, which is counterintuitive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls. We're going into some really important details here about evacuation and sheltering decisions to hurricanes in the midst of COVID-19 with Jennifer Marshall, Elizabeth Dunn, We Yusuf, and Josh Baer. I want to um, pick up the other side of this then. I mean, this conversation for me has raised the stakes. I already knew they were high for everyone in the communication shop. And that's from emergency operations center, PIOs, municipal, state, federal, all the way up. And the stakes, you know, we really know around evacuation. You were telling us that um, an evacuation order that doesn't correspond to a storm hitting comes with a a tax on trust and on real money out of people's pockets. And now we bring back in the covid situation too. So I guess I want to know how you're all thinking about this issue of communication and specifically if I'm a chief of staff or a governor or a mayor and I say, how do we communicate this risk 
What kinds of advice are you giving? What kind of questions are you asking yourselves about how public officials can maintain trust so that when they do give that evacuation order, it's maybe it's not followed in every case, but it's considered. It's given due weight. Would anybody like to pick that up? I know it's a huge question, but it's something I know you're thinking about. Well, one strategy that came up in our calls that uh, that we held with stakeholders across the country was messaging and this idea of, of including um, disaster messaging or disaster planning information in with other messaging. So, again, those, whoever those trusted messages are going to be, whoever those folks are going to be, it could be a, a person's health care provider, it could be a community health worker, it could be the local school's. I know it's summer, but um, there's lots of different venues mm -hmm. for delivering that information um, to the public. And it was surprising to us when we interviewed residents in, in Miami, in the Panhandle, that weren't even sure necessarily where their shelters were, even though it seems like that's readily available information. You could probably Google it, know your zone, but there's still work to do with um, understanding where people get their information from and then what they do with that information in terms of planning. So um, so I think that that's one strategy that I think is really important is our planners need to continue to engage with our, our work, workers, community workers. Well, I'd like to uh, point out something uh, that we picked up on in the last number of years through our uh, conversations with uh, residents of Hampton Roads. We've come up with this idea, uh, this concept called message discounting. And there's a lot of uh, uh, uncertainty and mistrust with uh, messaging. Uh, the citizens are looking for uh, facts and details uh, from their officials. So you got federal officials, you got state officials, you got local emergency managers, you got health officials, and then you got the people on the television, and now uh, you got people on social media. And often they're not all on the same page, and there's mixed messaging. And the people that see mixed messaging, tend to exhibit what we call uh, message discounting. So uh, in Hampton Roads, many families have a threshold for evacuation. If it's a category two storm, my family's gonna evacuate. That's my threshold in my family. But I know that there's uh, social engineering going on by my elected officials and uh, the media. And what they're doing, they're trying to hype up the storm. They're gonna try to social engineer us to get us worried, get us evacuated. They wanna effectuate our behavior and get us on the road to get out of Dodge. So uh, they're really saying it's a category two storm. Well, I'm gonna discount it. It's really a category one storm. Even though they say it's category two storm, my threshold to evacuate is a category two storm and it's really a one, so I'm not gonna evacuate. Now, when they start calling it a category three storm, then I know it's a category two storm. Then I wanna pull the trigger and evacuate. So this message discounting uh, comes from a, 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 a lack of trust or suspicion about the messaging that's coming from uh, various sources when that messaging isn't all on the same page. And often given the democratization we have and our liberty and our freedom we have in the United States and all the different sources we have, uh, we garner information from, it's almost impossible to expect to be a consistent single page uh, message. That's just the nature of our society that we're not a centralized system here. But I think uh, when you add on to that, there's also, I think you have to deal with the issue of conflicting information. With COVID-19, you're said you're told stay at home, shelter in place. And then there's a hurricane coming and all of a sudden there's a complete 180 shift 
in the message of get out of Dodge, right? And and so mentally, cognitively, sometimes it's hard to, there's already that inertia. I've been working from home for three months. You know, I've not put on real, real world clothes to go out and I've been staying at home. And that's been the consistent message, right? And so now all of a sudden, the message is, you've got to leave your house. And my house has been this safe place. I'm comfortable. I know my family doesn't have COVID, but now you're asking me to venture out of this comfort zone and evacuate when there's uncertainty about, you know, how much of a risk of a threat is this hurricane really? And how much of a threat is the outside world, right? So now I, as, as a decision maker at every level, I have to balance, am I safer at home? Because that's the message that's been hammered at me for the last three months. And is it safe to go out? And what are the implications of going out? If I evacuate to, say, my sister in Long Island, will I be quarantined in New York because I'm coming from Virginia? Oh, you know, so leaving the comfort and the safety of my home, uh, communicators have to overcome that initial inertia that people are dealing with because we've been at home, most of us, um, because of kind of how, how we're asked to, to respond to COVID-19. So that's inertia that has to be overcome. And how do you then send a message that's conflicting, um, but in a way that can get people to make those decisions? And, and you, know, you know, if you, you can't argue with the numbers, we talk to people and they say, why don't you evacuate? And they say, well, the risk is greater to evacuate. And when you look at the numbers, here in Hampton Roads, uh, the loss from getting getting mugged, right, having a car accident, having a death on the road, uh, the, the the anxiety and stress related to that evacuation. If you look up at the, the, the health related costs, aside from the fuel and the, and the food and all that stuff, but health related costs, you're much more likely to suffer some type of injury or loss or, or something to your health in an evacuation than if you sheltered in place. Now, that works out great until they really do have the catastrophic event. And so a number of people say, why evacuate? Because it's really not going to happen here. It hasn't happened in the past. And every time you tell me evacuate, nothing really happens. And I hear these stories of people being on the road and having auto accidents or being mugged at the Waffle House uh, in some inland city. And I ain't going to do that. And it's hard. the facts are there. The numbers show that. But in reality, if it's truly a severe potential catastrophic event, then you need to get out of Dodge, as Lee says. And just to say from the perspective of, of Florida, um, and especially like Tampa Bay, um, we have a lot of coastal communities that are very low income, especially around the port areas um, and down into South County. So we actually have a very large um, farm worker population. Um, so I know that the conversation centered around some of these vulnerable populations and making sure that they know that those that variation of risk is, is important because if you're in a mobile home in a potential 20 foot foot storm surge area, you know, risking COVID is going to be, you know, a complete, you know, you're talking about a risk that do, do you really want to take. So I know like in, in like how Dr. Marshall was talking about with our converge calls, um, there was um, a high discussion um, centered around that transparency and making sure that people understand, you know, that there's that communication to try and um, bring awareness, to try and alleviate some of those fears and emotions that the public might be 
experiencing mm-hmm. by saying, you know, this is what to expect if you come to a shelter. This is what we're doing to, to make things mm-hmm. um, safer. This is the infection control measures that we have in place. This is, you know, this is what we'll be, we'll, you know, we'll make sure to provide you masks if you come here or make sure that you bring your own so that you have uh, multiples on hand. Um, this is what our process is when you, you check in. Um, and, and it's pretty amazing to see all the innovative ways that people have come up with in their shelter design of trying to keep families in certain areas and make sure that spacing is there, uh, making sure that they open up areas that not, traditionally wouldn't be opened up, um, but making sure that they're safe and testing them out and going in and doing a second assessment of that building um, finding additional buildings. I mean, it's amazing to see some of these um, planning teams go out there week in, week, week after week, finding new locations that can be served as shelter locations so that families have a lot more space um, to kind of spread out. Um, but also, you know, making sure that the staff is trained to to handle some of the um, the new I guess standards that that meet that those guidelines by CDC or um, or the things that kind of come un- under play in terms of like surveillance or monitoring. So, and as as families, every resident decides, you know, if, when, and where they would evacuate to. What their plan A is, their plan B is. Um, there, you know, the messaging to know your zone and to know your home, so you can just make that basic decision. Um, but also, I think as Elizabeth said, we're really um, hoping to continue to send out more messaging about okay, know what your options are um, so that people can can plan ahead a little bit more um, and feel prepared and feel less anxiety about, about the whole process. And um, we did have another call just focused on mental health and reducing trauma and what are the ways to keep people calm and feel safe and secure when they're in shelter. Um, and also just to build that around the entire disaster cycle, you know, and preparing, responding, and recovery afterwards. It seems like that kind of communication is always crucial and then extra crucial. Right now, I talked with Kate Starbird mm-hmm. earlier this week. She's a communication researcher at the University of Washington, and we talked about disinformation and rumor. And, you know, we started this conversation earlier talking about Hurricane Katrina a little bit. And, you know, those rumors that were spreading um, misinformation about what was going on in the Superdome. And it turns out it was, was not what some had described. Um, it was not as dangerous as some of those rumors had spread. Um, that's just misinformation. That's just people spreading things without malicious intent. And Kate was sketching out a reality for us in which we live in a time in which there are you know, bad actors who want to spread disinformation to sow discord in society. I don't know if that's a something that you've developed a variable for yet in the way that you think about this kind of sheltering communication, but it's something I would be very, very worried about, particularly given the high political tempo coming into an election season and, and frankly, the amount of divisiveness across the country right now politically. Is that something that you can account for in these sort of amped up political times and concern about rumor and disinformation muddying what's already a difficult communication situation? Josh, you want me to take that? 
too hard. Too, and no, I start well, talking about Russian hackers, and everybody's yeah. like, "I'm out. It's not it's too much. I understand. It's pretty complicated." Actually, we, Josh, we, 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 have some, we have some thoughts on this, but we we can jump in. Go. Well, I I think that you know, one overcoming just even basic misinformation is problematic because of the lack of trust in some sources of information, right? And so um, misinformation itself is problematic, but disinformation that kind of misdirects um, more than anything, what what I think potentially we, we might see is disinformation about decisions for mandatory evacuations more than anything else. The political, the political context, for example, here in Virginia, when the governor um, announced a state of emergency not even an evacuation, but a state of emergency so that we could mm. mobilize those resources and potentially receive federal resources if needed. Um, that One of the things that I enjoy doing when I, when I go on Facebook or, or look at the press releases is to actually look at the comments, right? And, and so just in, in reading those comments already, you're seeing some of the subversive um, responses to the governor's uh, announcement about just even declaring a state of emergency that it that you know this is just another way to put more people out of work because now we're in a state of emergency that it's more about giving the governor and the state more power over over people so you know I, I think any the, the challenge with these kinds of decisions is that it, it is potentially that opportunity for the kind of the message to be twisted that no the longer the message is no longer about we might be seeing uh, a hurricane coming or we might need to think about evacuating it then becomes a completely different message about intent or about what um what are the things that are being hidden um or how we're trying to distract from other things that are that are going on um so it is it is a challenge i think Mm-hmm. And I don't know this because I have the answer. Uh, <laughs> no, I feel like uh, we you've just given a, a really good sort of uh, phrase for the social sciences, too. It's like we read the comments so that you don't have to do it. I mean, it's like to actually go into that fine grain of how people are reacting in these online spaces is actually probably a really important aspect of, of what you all are doing. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't. We're almost up on time, but um, uh, you're all working together uh, as part of a project called Converge. And we've had a few other Converge teams on COVID calls. I wonder if you could just maybe go around and say a little bit about what Converge is, what your project is, how you come together, what some of the goals are, because this is a really uh, important time for social science research to show what what it can do. Would anybody like to start that? I vote Jennifer. <laughs> I, vote, I vote Jennifer. Oh, my goodness. Um, Democracy right. in action. Jennifer, you are nominated and elected. So what's converging? What are you all doing? So, um, so yes, it's been wonderful working together across, um, across all of our team members and across our states. Um, what we did do is bring together stakeholders from uh, – across the country from multiple universities, but really with a goal of having the most diverse 
representation possible. So drawing upon all of our networks of emergency planners, again, those social service providers, community networks, um, residents, uh, healthcare, to have a series of conversations about this this season and I would say and beyond. Um, in terms of logistics, in terms of health, mental health, uh, defining vulnerable populations, um, messaging. So we have a series of calls on each of those topics and, and we have a website that has the after action reports from those. Um, what we're now doing is uh, a series of collaborative efforts with all of our together and with our respective partners and in, in other universities, uh, looking at specifically the workforce, assessing our workforce, um, uh, assessing, you know, uh, contributing to public messaging, and expanding our view of what vulnerability, uh, what vulnerabilities lay in this situation. So we have a number of projects going on, really looking at community health and preparedness, and also particularly at our workforce. And that workforce is us. Our, the, the community is the workforce. So it's all the same people. And I think that's important to note. Um, so our workforce is public health. It's our emergency responders. It's our um, essential personnel. But it's also our volunteers and our, our community health workers. So, um, so we're just trying to get a, get a gauge on where we're at in terms of that so that we can monitor their well-being, their preparedness, their trainings um, for this season. And now I'll let others jump in and add to that. Well, Elizabeth, why, not, why don't you? Oh, I was just gonna build off of what Dr. Marshall was saying. Um, so from there, like I just put in the link in the chat, but um, and we can also share that um, on Twitter as well. But I think the the key thing is when we brought all these individuals together, it really started a good conversation. So it was um, really neat to, neat to see people at the state, um, you know, federal and local level. And then from there, we were able to kind of branch off and see what other projects we can really dive into and more research that we can um, leverage and work on. So, for example, our team right now is putting together a survey to look at um, mental health, especially when it comes to burnout and then staffing, because a huge issue that we're seeing is, you know, how do we make sure that our staff are prepared and ready to work these shelters? And do they have burnout already from being activated for the past six months, um, either with emergency management or the health department or, or wherever they're at? Um, so we want to make sure that we're giving them the tools they need to be able to respond um, and feel um, they can handle their own psychological adjustment towards COVID uh, compounding events. Um, and then on top of it, we've been working very closely with the health department as well as the, the Office of Emergency Management across um, our region four to see about um, developing these just-in-time trainings. So we have a series of them that really align with a lot of the discussions that we had on these converged calls. Um, and we, we've been using some cool technology with 3D or the 360 cameras and, and what it would look like if you walked into that special needs shelter and had to set it up or had oh, wow. to operate in that environment. So it's kind of neat to see, you know, from those calls, the innovative ideas and discussions that come out of that. And, and how can we make sure not only the staff this, you know, this season, you know, what can we get them now and in their pockets so that they feel more comfortable going into this 
situation with the proper training to do so. But also um, there's been quite a few um, discussions on, you know, when I start teaching classes in the fall and I have four courses that I teach um, in public health preparedness and disaster management and, you know, how can we make sure that the students know what it's like walking into a special needs shelter and setting it up and getting them to think outside the box about infection control and how can we do it better? And it's pretty amazing when you have 40 students in a classroom and you're, you're, you say, hey, let's, let's get creative and how can we, we address this problem? You'd be surprised some of the, the things and ideas that come out of these conversations. Um, and they're the future of our, of what, you know, who's going to be doing this work in the next three, you know, two, three years. Um, and as soon as they graduate. So I think it's, it's great to see, you know, all these different, whether it be academia or practice and that bridge kind of come together and see how we can, can work through that. All right. We, um, I just want to make a quick note. We, um, we, I want, to, I want to turn to you on this too. I just want to underline for everyone that um, the sort of the hopefulness that's, that's being, that you're all conveying here in different ways. I know you didn't rehearse this, but really the different populations of first responders and people who are in the mix who, who are, or we expect them to pull us out of the burning building and also fix societal needs more broadly, sort of all at once. These are impossible jobs and people go in and do it. And um, so that's kind of what Jennifer was talking about and Elizabeth talking about the sort of next generation of people who are being trained and actually seeing this moment as of course a devastating global trauma and also though a moment in which new ideas will be forged. I think we've got to keep our eye on that. So I'm in the opinion box right now. I just wanted to point to the hopefulness of the work that you're doing. And we, I'm sorry, I've cut you off twice now. So let me give you the floor on this converge work. So not a problem. Um, Really for me, I think the bulk of my work really is at that intersection of government, nonprofits, businesses, and society. And so with the Converge stakeholder workshop that we hosted, I think more than anything, it was really important that we had, you know, federal representatives from federal agencies, state agencies, localities, but also nonprofits. And we had some businesses, for example, utility providers who would play a role in hurricane response um, and some community leaders. So I think that to me was also a really important facet of, of our work was thinking about how we prepare for and respond to a hurricane pandemic from kind of a whole of community, you know, not just intergovernmental, but whole of community way of thinking about it and learning from across those sectors as well. Um, and so it's really nice when we had those workshops to see um, the different perspectives that the nonprofit organizations had, because they approach, you know, some of them have much more direct hands-on work with vulnerable populations. Um, and that, but then you might also see the perspective of the government agency that have the resources to put into right. can preparedness and response. So it's really nice to see the gamut of those perspectives, but also having the different stakeholders talking to each other about how the risk, how they're planning for and hopefully responding to a hurricane during the pandemic. Joshua, I'm gonna give you the last word on this conversation and sort of draw it together for us a little bit. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with just saying one last thing about the Converge Project. It's uh, supported by NSF and it's through the Nat- Natural Hazard Center, uh, University of Colorado uh, Boulder. But the purpose of those six workshops 
which were national in scope. We had uh, representatives from uh, what do we have like 19 or 20 states, uh, people from all over the all across the board. The purpose the purpose of that was two things. One was to start to build a network of people, uh, and we've seen numerous conversations. Uh, that have come out of those six work national workshops that we had. Uh, but number two, uh, we were tasked with, through those workshops, to identify gaps and research questions. And uh, by identifying those gaps, uh, we need to know, we help inform NSF on where to uh, target resources and put out calls for research that will address those uh, gaps. So uh, we, we discovered that we knew a lot but we also discovered there were a lot of areas where we have gaps, but defining those gaps and putting them down on paper and being precise about them is a step towards solving them. And uh, I'm a big uh, uh, pro-American culture person, and I think there's a real genius in America. We have a decentralized system, and there's some uh, uh, trade-offs with that. You know, get, all getting on the same page is more difficult if in a decentralized system. However, uh, we are so innovative and creative as Americans and participating in those workshops, you see all the different uh, uh, innovative solutions that are suggested or different things that are going on in different localities across the U.S. And I, uh, I'm an optimist. I have no uh, doubt uh, we'll be able to uh, survive this and uh, come out more resilient and uh, better on the other end, uh, probably better than uh, missed, uh, most other um, cultures or organizations or states across the world. I'm really uh, proud to be American, all the great things we uh, do here, despite our shortcomings. Well, that's a good point to, to leave it. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls tomorrow on Thursday. Uh, we're going to be discussing the anniversary of the 75th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombings. And we'll be putting that in the context of radiation and survival and COVID-19 with Kyoko Sato, Kate Brown, and Bernadette Vincent Vincent. So please do join us for that discussion. And every day, every weekday, and 5 p.m. for COVID calls. And so I want to take this opportunity to thank my outstanding guests, Jennifer Marshall, Elizabeth Dunn, We Yusuf, and Josh Baer for this discussion today. And I'm just going to put the link back up one more time for people who might want to check out where you can find their work here, um, sites.wp.odu.edu slash hurricane dash pandemic. And that's where you can find their work, or I'm sure you could in email each of them, any of them individually, and get a link in, and I'm sure that would welcome your feedback. So thank you all for tuning in today. Everybody stay healthy, and we'll see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock for COVID calls. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.